2: So I need to tell you all about this product. And I'm sure you maybe have heard about, about it before, but you know that I have my two labs. One of them I'm obsessed with, Rosie. The other one, uh, Ruthie, um, I'm going to tell you, she is, um, She's. I call her the demon dog. She's horrible, does not know how to behave. Um, ate actually an entire bag of pistachio nuts with the shells last week on my bed. So I've kind of turned to BarkBox and um, I'm a subscriber. I love it. It's kind of they give you natural treats and themed toys, and it's really good, especially for dogs that may may or may not have some behavioral issues like my beloved Ruthie, who I'm hoping will improve one of these days. Um, would love for you to check it out. And if you want to subscribe, you can go to barkbox.com forward slash judging Megan, and you can subscribe, become a subscriber for six months or a year, whatever you want to do. And then you get one month free with my code. So check it out. I love it. I love their service comes right to your door and your dog will be happy to Okay. I'm going to tell you all something. Um, You are listening to Judging Megan with your host, Megan Judge. I have to tell you my story this week is about my husband um, and how he enjoys critiquing me. It's his favorite hobby. Um, He told me, and I have to tell my listeners this, that he thinks that I need to stop explaining the end of what I say every podcast, which is be happy by making other people happy. And he thinks that I go way too into the like in-depth story of why I say it, and it's because of my dad, and then this whole thing. He's like, Megan, just say it. You've been saying it enough now. So this episode at the end, I will only be saying, and moving forward, be happy by making other people happy. So I'm going to start there, and I'm going to introduce my guest right now. Everyone, I'm honored, beyond honored, to have Will Jimeno on my podcast. Hi, Will.
3: Hi, how you doing? Thanks for having me.
2: I'm so, I really, am. um, this is a really special podcast, um, because, um, you are a survivor of September 11th. Um, we're at the twin towers. We're going to go into that story, um, for me and for everybody that was alive during, if you weren't little, you know, I don't want to age myself, but I was young. I was in my twenties. Um, and I will never forget. I don't think anybody will ever forget where they were and and just watching the coverage on TV and then knowing what you went through and what a survivor you are and talking to you a little bit prior to recording that you live your life trying to help others. It's just such an honor to meet you. So welcome and thank you for coming on.
3: Well, again, thank you for having me. I look forward to uh, talking with you.
2: Okay, so let's get into it. Um let's start let's start with your childhood. Where are you from?
3: So I was born uh in Barranquilla, Colombia. I always tell people if you don't know where that is, that's where Shakira and Sofia Vergata is from. So everybody who knows them. Uh so from uh, on the coast town there in, in Colombia, South America. And my parents immigrated to the United States. My dad came over first in 68, uh, worked for a year, then brought me and my mother over uh in 1970. Uh, and we settled in a, a town called Hackensack, New Jersey. It's 12 miles from New York City. Uh, grew up seeing the skyline of New York uh, and uh, it was a good place to grow up. You know, my my parents really worked hard and they came here to this country like every other immigrant for the American dream. And uh, so that's where I was born and that's where I settled.
2: Um, did you like growing up in New Jersey? Were you happy? Like, I mean, I, I've never really met anybody. I, I'm an East coaster originally from um, outside of Washington, DC. But it's like this whole thing where if you're from like New York or New Jersey or that area, there's so much pride, right? Just being from there. Do you and do you feel that way? Did you always feel that way? I should ask.
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was natural. I grew up in, a, in really a melting pot. Hackensack, New Jersey, we had um, every nationality, every skin color, uh, religions. Uh, so for me, it was a melting pot. And that's why my mom always told me. She was, you know, as, as immigrants, what I want you to understand is we're coming to the greatest country on earth because of the rights and, and the opportunities people have here. But uh, as immigrants, what we're going to do is we're going to take the best of our culture. And integrate it into America to make America a better place. So she said, You were going to learn English. You're going to learn to fly the American flag, but still have your heritage. And Mm -hmm. uh, Hackensack was just a place that uh, Hackensack High School, where I went to, was just a melting pot of people. So for me, uh, not only was I proud to be from New Jersey, it was a great place to grow up, but when I went off into the military, it just made my life much, much more easier than people who will. Are not like uh, exposed to different nationalities or different types of people. For me, everybody I met, and I got to see eleven countries while I was in the Navy. I just gelled right in because that's where I grew up. It's like you just you gelled with everybody. You know, you everybody was different, but we were the same. So uh, that's one of the main things I like about New York and New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Is that you have so many different people from so many parts of the world that it makes you just. Uh, more acceptable to people and easier to accept people. Sometimes when you grow up in a small town, let's just say I'm just saying the Midwest. You know, when well, now you meet somebody, yeah. and here's a perfect example. Uh, when I was in the Navy, I was in boot camp, and my bunk mate, a uh, guy named Steve Steve uh, Steve Ribalas, uh, he looked at me, and he's a white guy from Louisiana, and he says to me, "What are you?" And I'm like, "What do you mean? What am I?" He's like, "Well, you ain't white, and you ain't black, uh, you know, because I'm kind of more brown." Yeah, and I looked at him. I'm like, uh, "Are you trying to ask me like, like what I am beside white and black?" He's like, "Yeah," and I said, "Well, I'm Spanish." And he goes, "Well, I've never met a Spanish person." And his town in Louisiana is a very small town. i, I If he had maybe, I don't know. I think it was like less than 800 people in the town. So for me, right then and there, I knew, hey, listen, my growing up in Hackensack, New Jersey gave me a lot of things, a lot of tools that would help me in the future. And that was really being accepting accepting of people and being open-minded and understanding that there are different people all over the world. And when I meet them, it's a thing where I say, you know what, what can I learn from these people? And what can make me a better person by meeting all these people? So, But that was a great example of a young man who was isolated and not for any reason other than that's just where he grew up. And there were Apparently only white people and black people. They weren't you know Hispanics or Asians. So it was a shocker to see it's his so face.
2: funny. I mean, I I'll be honest. I grew up in Potomac, Maryland. There was not a whole lot of um like it was all white people with Volvos, you know, and <laughs> I was always like, I need to like get out of here. And I did spend a short period of time like in uh, Connecticut, New York. And I loved it. I love the like feeling of, um, you know, auditioning. I was auditioning for theater and just like, yeah. it was so, it was just such a great feeling of being around so many people from so many different backgrounds. I think that that's what, I mean, it would solve so many problems in our country if people just did that, you know, and got yeah. out and, and talked to different people and honestly getting over, um, a prejudice or bigotry is the best way to do it is by living or working with somebody that you a different culture that you don't understand. Correct.
3: It's true. I mean, you know, uh, listen, I, I tell everybody and, and I don't mean to burst anybody's bubble. Uh, if you ever think that we're going to get rid of prejudice or racism or evil, as I you could take whatever bad thing is in the world, mm-hmm. they're all evil things you're not going to get rid of it. it's just you're never going to get rid of bullying and i'm sorry that if there's somebody out there says oh what's this guy talking about it it happens we go through it as children your kids are going to go through with children their kids are going to go through with it there's going to be racists. there's going to be bigots what we try to do is by uh learning about different people we start to accept people and we start to realize that the way we don't end it but learn to minimize it is by treating people the way we want to be treated meeting other people and saying hey they might have a different skin color they might have a different religion but they're still human beings and while they treat me with respect i should treat them with respect and you know we're all we all make mistakes growing up we all say stupid things we all do stupid things growing up that might hurt someone's feeling you start realizing as a human being you start to learn as you evolve you shouldn't do things like that and one of the things for me basically was awesome was traveling i tell people like you just said Get out of your box. If you're able to travel the world, you will learn so much, and you will see that there are people who are totally different of us uh, than you, uh, think differently than you, uh, believe things differently than you. But at the same time, we're human beings, and that's where we learn to grow and to be more accepting of people. But travel, I think, is uh, is immense. Like I tell people here in the United States. If they're closed minded about things, if they think of certain things like they sometimes we take certain communities that live in a bubble and they think the world is this way. Well, go to a third world nation. You'll see that maybe you think you're not living at a high standard. Well, if you start to travel, you're going to see parts of the world. People have way less than you will ever have, you know, uh, that th- they'll ever have, you know, and it's important for you to understand that when you travel the world when you come back here and I use America as example, that this is the greatest country on earth, because honestly, uh, even a person in low income status is living better than people in some third world nations, you know? And I, I just just, what I tell kids always make sure that you try to branch out, uh, broaden your horizons by traveling. It will teach you so much. It really will.
2: I love that. I love what you said. And I love the fact that you know, you're honest. I mean, you can teach. I have two little girls. You can teach pe- kids all day. Don't bully. <laughs> be kind. It's we're all human beings. Like, you know, yeah. um, we like we are not perfect. Like we're perfectly imperfect. And there is a lot of evil and sadly in the world. And um, but it's I love that you say traveling, like meeting new people going different places and realizing how really fortunate we are to live in this country and how much we should appreciate what we have, you know, and where we live. And we really at this time in particular, and I won't get political. I mean, we need to unite, like, you know, look at what's happening in Ukraine. Like all they want is freedom. And we have that. So we really need to appreciate and be kind to each other to the best of our ability. So I love what you said.
3: No, Thank you. And I think uh, I just want to let anybody that's listening to us today understand that don't let the media or social media fool you. Uh, We are more united than people think. I mean, uh, if there's a car accident, people stop and they help each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fire, people are calling the fire department. People are trying to help. Uh, Trust me, there's more good in this world than bad. Uh, You know, and I want people to remember that, Uh, you know, the media, if you watch too much media or you're too much into social media, the negative stuff, that's how they make their business. I always say if they were to show all the good news in the world, nobody would watch the news, you know? And I want that, especially for young children to understand that don't have a dark outlook on the world. Uh, yes, there are bad things going on in the world, but there's more good things happening in the world. Like we'll just take Ukraine. Um, you know, there are people who are volunteering to go fight there that not even from that country because they
2: freedom. That's incredible. Because
3: people, um, You know, I have a friend of mine here, John Rubikowicz, who is a former U.S. Marine, one of the first Marines in in Afghanistan. And he started a program here, which I just went into my neighborhood uh, Facebook and said, hey, my friend John is looking to get first aid equipment to ship off to Ukraine. Well, people in my neighborhood, they, they answered the call and I had a big box of first aid equipment and were able to send it off to Ukraine. So I always tell people, just remember There is more good in this world than bad. And uh, unfortunately, what they get ratings for and what captures people's attention is the bad things, you know what I mean? And or the silly things, you know, and people have to be just mindful of keep your eye on what's important and what's positive.
2: I love that you said that because I think that I do sometimes lean, especially recently, (laughs) too much into like what you see on social media and like how people hide behind their computer screens. And, you know, the news outlets are, you know, that they get their ratings through, you know, sharing the worst possible stories. I I think it's important that we recognize the good and there is so much good in the world and you're right. And I, I think I needed to be reminded of of that. So thank you. So I want to ask you, your childhood seemed happy, good, like mom and dad grew up like in, in, um, New Jersey. Then did you decide to go into the Navy, like right after high school or.
3: So, uh, I went to Catholic school from kindergarten to eighth grade. Uh, me too. And, and my, and, you know, that cost my parents a lot of money. My dad was a welder. My mom yeah. was a seamstress, so they really wanted the best for us. But uh, I wanted to go to public high school. You know, I grew up with the same kids from kindergarten, to eighth grade, great kids. But there was about 13 of us, and I wanted to expand. And I ended up going uh, to Hackensack High School. And, uh, you know, my dad wanted me to be a, be a doctor. I always said, Dad, I'm just not that smart. But one of the things ever that influenced me growing up was television back then. You know, watching uh, Adam 12, the police show, Emergency. Uh, which is the paramedic show and a lot of movies about Vietnam and Korea. And I just found it inspiring on how I saw people, how people in those shows and how soldiers fought for our country that when it was time for me to make a decision to go to college, I did get accepted into colleges, but I just had this overwhelming feeling that I wanted to give back to this country that had given my family so much, you know, and I'm blessed. I have two great parents, you know, and I'll talk a little bit about that later, but um, you know, Not everybody has that. Not everybody has two great parents or a a, a roof over their head, food on the table, clothes on their back. I did. I can't complain. Uh, But I was also brought up in a way of hard work by example. uh, To my mom always taught me, you might be Hispanic, but I don't want to hear about being a minority or or always me. Don't use it as a crutch. You're as good as the next person. While you work hard, uh, you study hard. So it doesn't matter what color skin you or where you come from or. Where you are on the income ladder, just work hard. But I wanted to give back. So I had told my parents I wanted to serve in the U.S. Navy after I settled on Navy. And uh, I went off to uh, to do four years in the, in the Navy. I was on a great ship, the USS Tripoli LPH-10. Uh, that's the one only ship in the Navy that got uh, had combat in the first Gulf War. I had just gotten off the ship. A lot of my friends were still on there. Uh, but in those four years, like I said, I saw 11 different countries, Uh, We did a lot of exercises with different countries from um, the Koreans uh, to the Japanese to the Australians. I mean, just the list goes on. And I was really, uh, my eyes were open to how big the world is and how, as an American, not to be so cocky. You know, one of the things senior sailors would tell us when we were in other countries is when a person from those countries dislikes an American, they probably have the right to because it's the way we come off. You know, hey, I'm an American. No, be accepting that you're in their country. You know, respect their rules as we expect them to respect ours. And that was something I remember that really stuck in my mind is don't come across like, hey, I'm an American and we're the best in the world. Because the reality is, what makes the the best of the world is bringing the best uh, ideas and best things from the world uh, to make a better place. And that's what the U.S. is. We really are a nation, a melting pot, and we have people from ireland colombia and all over the world that make this country great so i started learning that real early like respect their culture respect their country as i would want them to respect our culture and our country and uh it was just a great thing you know it made me feel fulfilled that i was able to give back to this great nation and still in the process my real dream was going back to the tv shows was helping people i was since a child i wanted to be a police officer and that was my goal after the military was to go into law enforcement. Uh, but le- And th- that's another thing that the Navy helped me with, was just learning how people are different, how people act. Uh, and, and that was going to help me, uh, unbeknownst to me, as a law enforcement officer, because I was open to the fact that I eventually ended up on the Port Authority Police of New York and New Jersey, and I was going to be stationed midtown Manhattan. Well, now you're talking a melting pot from people from all over the world, and- the things I picked up while I was in the Navy, you know, uh speaking a little bit of Korean, a little bit Filipino, you know, a little Japanese, uh it, and just the basic stuff, it would come in handy in my law enforcement career.
2: I, I love, there's like, I talk a lot about purpose-driven life, like living a purpose-driven life. I love that you just came out that way. You know, like, you're like, this is what I want to do. I want to give back. I want to go into the Navy. I want to be like... I'm always, I'm always inspired. And also, you know, like love when people know from a young age, what they want to do. And, and, and also just that you were like, this is what I want to do. I want to give back. I mean, 18 years old is so young, right? I mean, I have an 11, she just turned 12. I have a 12 year old and I'm like, that's not even that far away (laughs) for us. And so to know that, you know, we don't realize it. Like when we're young, we think, oh, 18, that's so old. But looking back now and being like, oh, I'm going to go into the Navy, serve on, you know, on this giant boat and go all over the world. That's terrifying to me. Like, I can't imagine being that young and just doing that. And, and, I, i'm always I'm always in awe of people that do that, so thank you for your service. i think I think it's just incredible that people are feel that calling to do it. And I also think that you know w- there's not enough of it sometimes that people really want to give back, and maybe I'm wrong on that, but I just think I'm always inspired by people that just go into you know, some kind of service, like whether you be a firefighter, or a policeman, or you go into the armed services, not because you're forced, but because you have a calling.
3: Yeah. And, and you know, here in America, we're not forced, you know, we're very fortunate uh, that we don't have a draft, uh, you know, but we, and I mean, I, I try to remind people that I think the percentage is one or 2% of Americans is, will protect this country. You know, I think there's now 300 and we well, might be up to 340 million people in this country. You're talking 1% or maybe 2% that are protecting our freedoms. That's kind of like, whoa, that's really lopsided. Uh, so those men and women that are putting their lives on the line every day by serving, they are the utmost of what the term hero means. You
2: know, they And are then protected. they should, P.S., yeah. be treated, be treated fairly. Well, like, And that goes back yeah. to. Again, you, you know,
3: through, through the Vietnam era, you see the mm-hmm. mistake that we as Americans made, that we treated our soldiers, calling them baby killers and all those things. And those, those men and women that fought were just doing their job. They, yeah. you know, when you're in the military, people have to understand that when that first bullet goes, and I'll take this, this line is from uh, Black Hawk Down where uh, the, the ranger talks to a, a Delta Force operator and says, you know, what are your political views on what we're doing in Somalia? And he goes, it doesn't matter. The first time a bullet goes over our heads, it's not political. It's about us taking care of each other as Americans, as family members. And people have to understand there are men and women who are protecting us. They're there and they're, they're there to do a job. And as soon as there's combat, they're taking care of each other, but they're also taking care of us by protecting us from evil. And uh, I commend everybody who has given their service, uh, are serving today, and especially those loved ones who has has lost a soldier, an airman, a Marine during combat. You know, they are the people who truly, truly allow us to have freedom of speech and keep the Constitution alive every single day. Uh, you know, again, we're a big landmass, 340 million people. Uh, you know, September 11th was the the one of the few times in our history where that evil touched our nation here on our ground. Uh, Most of the time people are watching it on TV, you know, just like the the war in Ukraine, that's far away, right? (laughs) Oscars, people are still talking about crazy stuff. You know, people still having their, you know, their, their basketball games with their children going to soccer games. But you know what? Uh, It can happen here. And it did happen on September 11th. We were attacked, you know, and Ukraine, It was not only uh, less than 35 days ago where they were a nation of of peace and things, the buildings were up. Now you look at parts of Ukraine, they're destroyed, you know. And, uh, you know, 20 years ago, uh, we had the World Trade Center come down. We had the Pentagon attack. We lost Flight 93, you know. So it can happen, you know. The chances of happening are slim, but it can happen and it has happened. And we have to remember that the men and women who are protecting us are fighting a really good fight to make sure that doesn't happen here in our, in our country.
2: It's so true too. I mean, you, you remind me that I, I was listening like to the news even a week before Ukraine was attacked. And, um, they were saying, you know, they were all on the streets going to dinner. They're like, it's not going to happen here, you know? Um, and it's, it's, it's so true like that we owe so much to, um, Everyone that serves our country that protects us and how fortunate we have we are, and um, it's just so important to keep that in mind and think about like you know what these people are going through. It's hard, it's like almost like you don't want to think about it because you don't want to be reminded. It's almost like going through some kind of grief or loss, right? Right. Losing for me, like losing my dad or losing my best friend or the losses I've gone through when I hear of another person going through it it kind of brings it back and so you don't you sometimes as humans you just to shield yourself you have to stop and like kind of not think about it but we really should um i wanted to go into you know you became a police officer when you got out can you tell me a little bit about what that was like what that's like being a <laughs> new york city police officer well i was a port
3: authority police officer so okay. we're- we're a bi-state agency. We work with the NYPD as well as all the uh, municipalities on the New Jersey side. So the Port Authority Police is a unique entity. Uh, we have all the major transportation facilities in New York and New Jersey, and we're police officers on both st- uh, on both st- in both states. So we have uh, the World Trade Center, uh, the three major airports: John F. Kennedy, LaGuardia, Newark, as well as a couple of the smaller ones like Teterboro. Uh, we have the bus terminal where I worked, which is the largest bus terminal in the country and the busiest in the world, believe it or not. Uh, the Lincoln Tunnel, the Holland Tunnel, the Virazano Bridge. Uh, no, excuse me, not the Varozano Bridge, uh, the Gothels Bridge, uh, Port Newark. Uh, so we really are spread out the PATH train, which takes us uh, people from New York to New Jersey. So we have all the major transportation facilities. And one of the things that sets us apart from the NYPD and a lot of the municipalities is that our facilities – are all target-rich environments. That's something that was taught to us in the, in the academy, that we're going to do the same job as the NYPD and, and all the municipalities on the Jersey side. What sets us apart is, again, we're target-rich environment. What I mean by that is in 1993, we were bombed at the World Trade Center. So if you're a terrorist, what is your goal? Is to inflict as much damage and death in one place to make a statement. What better place, unfortunately, than uh, the airports, the bridges, the tunnels, the World Trade Center? The bus terminal in the morning at the bus terminal. What we call the rush is there's thousands of people coming through those two buildings in Midtown Manhattan. All right, and they're coming in from Connecticut, New Jersey, upstate New York. Uh, at any moment, you have thousands upon thousands of people. So if you blow that place up, you're going to create extensive carnage, and that's what they did on September 11th. So, uh but and for me personally, I loved it. I loved. Uh, I'm, I was kind of a. Always with gung ho guy, wanted to work, wanted to learn, uh, and no place better than Midtown Manhattan. You know, um, just you had everything going there. You had tourism at the same time. You had a lot of crime still, uh, and it was a, a for me. It was a great learning experience. I had great senior officers that took me under their wing. They saw that I wanted to work, um, and at the same time, for all the cop stuff and all the macho stuff as as a child that I wanted. The one thing that made me feel like a cop wasn't my first gun arrest or drug arrest. It was the day that I helped a bilingual woman uh who had uh lost her purse had been uh, uh was lost, had lost her purse. She was she was actually attacked and uh I was the only one on the tour that spoke Spanish. So I came in, I helped her, uh got her on a bus actually back to Hackensack, New Jersey. I paid for her fare. She gave me a hug. I remember going home and telling my wife Today, I feel like a cop. You know, I actually made a positive difference. The next day, I got a call from somebody from the Hackensack Police Department who actually knew. And he said, hey, do you know who you helped yesterday? I said, no, I don't know. Uh, He's like, that's my wife's grandmother. And I said, wow, you know, what are the chances that I knew him and I got that feedback that it meant the world to her that I was there to be able to translate, to make her feel safe and to get her on a bus back safely to Hackensack, New Jersey. Uh, so for me as a police officer and being a poor Authority police officer, I really attained my dream of becoming a police officer, but not only helping people in one state, but people in two states and really at the bus from lots of people from around the world because we get so many tourists that come in and I I could share tons of stories with you from people from Europe and Asia that would come up and ask us questions. And it's, it's, it's pretty cool. And at the same time, I was fulfilling my dream of becoming a police officer and making in my small world, a positive impact by helping people, whether it's information, whether it's stopping crime, and especially when it was a medical emergency where we can uh, uh, give aid to someone who really needed at that moment and eventually help them feel better, whether it be, you know, so they didn't lose their lives or, you know, they were just safe. And that, that means a lot because I know that if, my family dials 911 or they're in dire straits that they're going to be police officers, EMTs, firefighters there to help them.
2: Um, I love, I love that you say that that's your favorite like memory of, because it's, it's so true. I mean, sometimes I think I do this selfishly when people come and they're like, Oh, your podcast helped me because of whatever. And I'm not even comparing myself to you, but I'm just saying for me, selfishly, I'm like, I love making people happy and doing like, cause it's, it like fills your soul, right? It's like that story and how you touch that woman. And there's a quote that I was posted the other day. Somewhere out there, there's somebody that will never, that it w- will always remember you for something kind that you did and you don't even know it, right? But it's something like that. It's a quote like that. And I, and I love hearing stories like that.
3: Well, that's, that's what I tell people. I, yeah. you know, especially when I talk to children's in schools, uh, you know, I let, I let the young people know, listen, your actions have consequences, whether they're good or bad. And just having a smile on your face every day, opening a door for somebody, uh, me and my wife were just talking about this, you know, paying it forward. Like, you know, right. uh, I was in, in, in a local town yesterday, I was a young officer. And I told the person said, put that on my tab, you know, and afterwards he came up to me, said to me, goes, you know, I've been a cop four years. Nobody's ever done that for me. And I'm like, you know what? Uh, Well, thank you. I'm doing that because of your service. But my wife said someone did it for her one day at Starbucks. Someone paid ahead, paid it forward, made sure that, hey, whatever that lady is taking, I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to give you money for that. And my wife's done it since. And you don't realize that just by doing those small things, a smile, opening the door, buying somebody a cup of coffee, you know, you can change that person's life, especially if they're having a bad day. You know, 100%. It's, and, and it's and you don't you're not always going to get that feedback. You know, I do a lot of speaking engagements and I don't always hear the stories of, you know, hopefully I am affecting people, but I have had good feedback. And when you get that feedback, no amount of money, no amount of materialistic things can make up for that because uh, you're, you're doing something very special. And that's why I tell everybody, understand that your story is important. Don't think that your story is not important. You're an important piece of this world uh, to your family, to those people around you. And, you know, sometimes when you share some of the challenges you went through and overcame to somebody else, that might help that person down the line. You might never hear about it, but it will. It will really help people. And I think it's important that we do that, that we try to be kind. And we're all going to have bad days. Listen, uh, to sit here and say that I'm a happy guy all the time. My wife will probably tell you, yeah, he's happy all the time. But, you know, I have, I have bad days and there's days that I'm, I might not be nice to somebody. And, and you know, I, I catch myself like, don't do that, you know, because that is going to affect other people.
2: Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I feel like I've been using Claritin-D for probably a few months now, and I have really noticed a difference. I can work out I'm not feeling like my eyes are watering and my nose is all stuffed up. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount. So you can live
1: Claritin clear. Use as directed. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, Made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. So, I uh, do it too.
2: I think it's really important that we do that. I've been known to give the bird in traffic um, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, we all have our bad days. Um, yeah. And, you know, sometimes I think about my behavior if I'm frustrated and I'm like, why did I do that? That wasn't okay. I think that that's important that we we put ourselves in check all the time and also i love that paying it forward because it is what we're supposed to do as people if you're spiritual um and you know you're religious great feeling i think yeah just great
3: feeling that makes you understand that you know what i just did something positive for somebody and it it doesn't have to be big yeah and just be holding the door Saying hello to somebody with a smile, you know. Uh, We're buying a York,
2: coffee for someone at Starbucks. Yeah. In
3: yeah. New York, it's sometimes tough because you say hi to somebody with a smile; they think, "Hey, what's your angle?" And uh, yeah. <laughs> no, and it's different when I go down south to visit my daughter in Alabama at Auburn University. You know, everybody's high; they're smiling high, and then you know, then the the city person in me is like, "Hey, what's their angle?" You know? Yeah.
2: So and they don't really- just they don't say hi. They say they say what do they say? They say hi, hi y'all you know, like, cause yeah, I have family in the South. Yeah. So they're very, I get it.
3: they're very friendly down South and God bless them. Because let me tell you, every time I go down there, you come back feeling like, wow, the world is great. You know, they're yeah. just really kind.
2: Yeah. Okay. So I hate to go to the dark place mm-hmm. um, and the dark stories, but I do, I do want to talk about the September 11th and how obviously what you went through and kind of like, I want my audience to hear your story on that day, that particular day. Um, And I know it's probably difficult, but I'm hoping that you can share like that morning, like what, you know, was it like every other morning? Like what happened that day when you woke up? Well,
3: You you know, first of all, I just want to say that it is the darkest day in U.S. history, unfortunately, Pearl Harbor. Uh, But 20 years later, what I want people uh, to understand that what I'm going to share with you should be something of light. Uh, because the one thing I promise you is that if you look at the good things from a tragedy, you'll find something good. And I, I, I was taught that, uh, you know, if we leave a tragedy as just a dark thing, that's what it will be. But if we look at a tragedy and take light out of it, we, we change it and make it something, learning lessons for the future. And that's what we need to do today. Uh, the darkest day of, of U.S. history, uh, 2001, nine, uh, of, of uh, you know, September 11th. Uh, You know, I was a rookie cop. I had nine months on the job. We had just graduated at the World Trade Center at the Marriott as the 100th class of the Port Authority Police. Uh, Had nine months of of great time as a police officer at the bus terminal. But on September 11th, you know, I was living the American dream. Uh, I was married to my beautiful wife, Allison. We had a four year old little girl. We had a second baby on the way. My wife was seven months pregnant on September 11th. In six weeks prior to the attacks, I had just bought my first house with my wife, Allison. So really, my life was really living the American dream. And I got up that morning, went to work. I worked seven to three tour. So I'd get into work about, you know, 530 in the morning, get ready around six. We'd have roll call where we're giving out our assignments. My assignment was on the corner of 42nd, 8th Avenue, post three, five. And like I mentioned earlier, what we have is called the rush. In the mornings and the afternoons, we have thousands of people coming into the bus terminal. And in the afternoon, they're going back through the bus terminal to go back to where they came from. Uh, That morning was no different. I I was under the awning of uh, the the building on the 42nd, 8th Avenue, looking at the doorway, as I usually do, seeing thousands of people come out. And it was just a normal day. Uh, I happened to look over to my right. And there's an awning, like I said, above me. And just outside the awning, there was a Sergeant Sergeant Ross and two other officers, uh, Pat McNerney and uh, Officer Sanchez. And they were just outside the awning so they could look up into the sky. And I just happened to look over and I saw Sergeant Ross kind of pointing at something going like this. And I looked over to the intersection of 42nd 8th Avenue. For those of you who have never been to New York City, uh, intersection of New York City is pretty big. And all I saw was a shadow come over the intersection, just cover it for a split second which was kind of weird. And I saw the sergeant kind of following it. They didn't think anything of it. I don't know, maybe a couple minutes later, our radios crackled. They told us all to 840, which was our code for all the officers come back to the police desk. Uh, I hooked up with a fellow officer who I graduated with, Dominic Pizzullo. And we started walking back through the main building. And, you know, he just like, man, something really bad must have happened for them to call us all off post because this is the busiest time of the day where mm-hmm. we to be out there, our presence known. But we ended up going back and as I came around the police desk, one of the things that I learned when I was in the Navy, and this is something that is really true and I hope people take to heart, is uh, always follow somebody that knows their job into something bad because your percentages of coming out of that are, are higher when the person has knowledge. And uh, one of those people that I always respected was Sergeant John McLaughlin. Uh, he was a 19 year veteran, he was a former ESU officer, which means emergency service, which is SWAT. Uh, and that somebody had been to various calls with. And I remember looking up, I saw the lieutenants, the sergeants, but he really caught my attention because I saw concern in his face, and we just kept walking, but that caught my attention. And when we got back into what's called our reserve room, our break room, we had the TV set and a news agency, New York One, was on, and we saw a big black gaping hole in Tower One. And right then and there, what I talked about earlier, what they taught us in the academy is, what is the thing about the Port Authority that terrorists love? They love our target-rich environments. Mm-hmm. Right away, Sergeant Ross, who actually saw the plane, said, those are terrorists. Now, I didn't see the plane, but he said it was a major airliner. And even back in 2001, the technology was such that we knew there was no way it was an accident. Uh, at that point, I turned around, and we had pay phones back then. So I picked up a pay phone, and I tried to call my wife. And I luckily got through that morning. And I just told her, hey, listen, just so you know, there's been uh, an incident at the Trade Center. Now, mind you, I'm at Midtown Manhattan, the World Trade Center is downtown. Um, and I just said to her, look, I don't know what's going on, but I just want to let you know I'm okay. So she kept asking me, do you know what's going on? I said, I don't know. And the reason she was asking me, because uh, I had two, we had two mutual friends that worked at the World Trade Center. So she was concerned about them. And I said, I don't know their status. So that's when Inspector Fields, who was our commanding officer, walked in the back uh, and said, listen, we've commandeered a bus on Ninth Avenue and we are going to take some of us down there to help our brothers and sisters from the Port Authority police to start evacuating the World Trade Center. At that point, I hung up and uh, my wife will always tell you that that's the one time I never said I love you because I always say I love you to her before I hang up. And uh, myself and 20 other officers got on the bus that was commandeered and were led down by Sergeant McLaughlin to the world trade center. Uh, We got down there pretty fast Uh, when we got there uh, and got off the bus. It just, it looked like Armageddon, you know, I mean, I saw tower one on fire. Uh, I saw the corner of two on fire. And in my mind, I thought, okay, a plane hit, there was a deflection and um, you know, the corner of two was on fire. What I didn't know. You
2: didn't know that there were two planes. You thought it was just one plane. Okay. Yeah. Because what happened when we were in route, the second plane
3: had hit. So when we got there, we only thought one plane had hit, but I never did see the gaping hole around the second tower. So at that point, we were standing there and uh, that was tough because as we're looking, there are people actually jumping. And that's one of the senior officers who was there in 1993, Ronnie Delmar said, look, they're jumping. And every time someone jumped, they would jump and then disappear behind building six. But they would jump by themselves. They would jump holding hands. And I just felt helpless, you know, because here... As a man, you know, you're macho and you're thinking, hey, here I am. I got this uniform on. I got a gun on me. I got a shield on me. But you realize we're all human beings. And I felt this small. I felt like I was standing in front of the ocean. And um, and as people jumped, the only thing I could think about was like taking a pebble and throwing it to a pond and that ripple effect. Every time somebody jumped, that was somebody's father, mother, brother. Mm-hmm. So the list, And, you know, I just stood there like we need to do something. You know, my mind was, we need to get up there, break a wall so people can see our uniforms and say, follow us. Well, Sergeant McLaughlin came running up Vesey Street from Vesey Street up to West Broad where we were and asked for volunteers. And uh, myself, Dominic Pizzullo, and Tony Rodriguez, which we all graduated the academy together, volunteered. And we became a team of four and we started running. And I got to tell you, I was scared. Uh, I was very scared. Now, I was 33 at the time. I've been in the military. I've considered myself... A Tough guy, but I was scared as a human being. You're scared,
2: yeah. Let and me let me stop you really quickly. Did you think in your head that they would come down just being that close to the towers? Like, or were no, you you did no, you had no idea? Uh, I don't,
3: you know, we lost the best of the best that day from the port, yeah. door, the YPD, the FDNY. Uh, nobody thought those buildings were coming down. The, the people we lost were standing right at the base of them that were experts. Uh, it just something I never thought about. Uh, you know, the only goal I think every rescue worker was to get people home that day end the story you know, and as we ran I, I I shared this with children I said, you know where does courage come from it's simple it, it it comes from overcoming your fears and in that moment when I had fear in my heart, I remembered I took an oath to serve and protect. I knew Dominic was scared I could see that uh, Antonio was scared, but we had a job to do, and people were depending on us so we went in uh, we went in. We got our equipment on. Uh, for those that never been to the World Trade Center before, fell especially those people who weren't even born. There were two huge buildings connected by a mall level, uh, and that's how you would get to each tower through the small level, what we call the concourse. That was underneath the main uh, towers, and you get to the elevator banks. Uh, we went, we went downstairs to police desk. We got more equipment. We had a mail cart which I was pushing. We came up, and we looked like firefighters with guns on our sides because the Port Authority police. We're not only trained in law enforcement and uh, first aid, we're also trained in firefighting because we're the first responders at the airports. God forbid a plane comes down. We're the first ones there. So we're cross trained. Uh, so we had our Scott air packs on, our helmets on. So like I said, we look like firefighters with guns on our side. We came up into the mall uh, concourse area and we started working our way around. And one thing that I want to share with everyone is mm-hmm. people always ask me, well, what did you see at the world trade center that really sticks out? And in all the horrific things i seen, the one thing that stuck out the most was love. There was a steady flow of people coming from Tower 1 helping each other. And I remember a black gentleman with a white gentleman carrying this uh, white woman with blonde hair. What a severe cut on her leg. And they were carrying her in a single file line. And I thought to myself, if these civilians can be this brave, us in uniform, we need to be three notches above them. And we continued on. And again, not knowing that Tower 2 had been hit, we went toward Tower 2. Sergeant McLaughlin wanted to get more equipment, and there was an emergency room, an e-room over there. So we went down there, uh, and you could look into the lobby of two. It was revolving doors, glass, and you could see people who had passed, people who were injured. Our cops were shooting out windows toward uh, Liberty Street so people can get out more. Sergeant McLaughlin had told me to stay with the cart as they went downstairs, the rest of the team, to get more equipment. And at this point, we had... Uh, met up with another officer, Christopher Amoroso. There's a famous picture of Christopher Amoroso saving a woman before uh, going back into the trade center and hooking up with us. Uh, So we had become a team of five at that point. So they went downstairs to get more equipment. I stood there. And again, that fear came over me because I would hear these sounds, the sounds of explosions. Uh, And some of it was concrete hitting the ground, but most of the time it was the sound of a human body hitting the ground. And that was really killing me because... Again, that's somebody's family member we're losing. At that point, another officer walked up to me from the Port Authority Police, Bruce Reynolds. Bruce was an African-American. I knew of him only because of a paper where I grew up in Hackensack called the Bergen Record. Uh, The George Washington Bridge, the command sits on in Fort Lee, New Jersey, which is part of Bergen County, a 21-county district. So we have the paper there. And I would always read the stories of the Port Authority Police Officers. Stopping or helping people that were thinking committing suicide from jumping on the bridge. So I had seen him in the paper. I didn't personally know him, but I knew of him. And he walked up to me. He was sweating. He had a Scott Air Pack on. We talked. You know, he said, "Hey Reynolds, GWB, George Washington Bridge." I said, Jimeno, BT, bus terminal." And the one thing that Bruce said to me that really sticks in my mind is he said, "You know what, kid? It's going to be a long day, but we'll get a lot of people home. We're going to get a lot of people home." And in the midst of a young rookie cop feeling fear. Here's this man who shouldn't have been in there because I believe he had some kind of lung condition from some other incident was in there putting his life on the line to get people home. And as the rest of the team started coming up, Bruce walked away. That would be the last time I saw him because he perished when that building came down. At that point, Antonio Rodriguez says to me, "Will, you've been pushing the cart from the police desk here. Let me push now. So I thought great, great teamwork. We started departing Tower 2, not knowing it was in distress. Halfway down that hallway, we stopped because Sergeant McLaughlin's radio went off, asking us where we were, the the inspector. And we happened to stop, which is a miracle, next to a doorway that led to a freight elevator to our right. Uh, That's when we kind of stopped, and I heard a humongous boom. I looked back from where we were walking, and I could look into the lobby of 2 when I saw a huge fireball, I mean the size of my house. And I just stood there, and I'm sh- shaking like out of an earthquake. And I go back to what I said, follow somebody in that knows what they're doing because your chances of getting out are higher. Well, at that moment, I didn't know what to do. Sergeant McLaughlin saw something I didn't. As the building is coming down, it's actually pushing debris into the uh, concourse. He saw it. In his mind, he thought, car bomb. What do they do in the Middle East? They blow something up, get first-, first responders in again, blow them up again. He said, run, run toward the elevator. So Dominic ran. I ran behind Dominic. Sergeant McGlock was behind me. And um, that's the first time I said, Will, what did you get yourself into? Because I started seeing debris, which I know is the building, and the lights started flickering. I followed Dominic around, and that's when something big picked me up, threw me on my back, and just the whole world came down on me. The only way I could describe it is like millions of freight trains coming down, you know, the humongous roar. I'm on my back. Uh the first thing as a police officer you go for is your communication is your lifeline. I go for my lapel radio and I'm yelling 813 which is officer down. Uh I, I yelled it maybe 3 or 4 times when something hit my hand and I lost my radio. I was holding on for deal life as everything's coming on with the helmet and something hit this helmet which I had a chin strap on and ripped it off my head. Oh no. At that point I just like covered up and it's really hard to describe because it felt like it was happening forever and then it just stopped and it was silence. And I found myself in the dark. Uh, after a little bit, I started seeing a, a hole above me, about thirty feet, and light was coming in. And when I could see, it was I was in a cavern, a very small cavern. Uh, Dominic was buried in a push-up position next to, to my left, face down. What I know today is actual wall came and crushed me, and Dominic got stuck in underneath the debris. Uh, I could see toward my feet, and just beyond my feet was nothing but concrete. And that's when I could hear Sergeant McLaughlin on the other side of that concrete. Uh, He was actually pinned on the initial collapse in a fetal position. He was just stuck. He wasn't injured. Uh, Sergeant McLaughlin said, sound off. I said, Jimeno. Dominic said, Pizzullo. And then we didn't hear Antonio Rodriguez or Christopher Amoroso. I yelled their names for like two to three minutes. And that's when Dominic said, "Will," they're in a better place. And that's when we realized we lost two teammates. Um, At that point, You know, Sergeant McLaughlin just said, what's everybody's condition? I told him I was pinned. I was in great pain. Dominic says, I think I can shimmy out of here. He literally had to crawl over my face, and there was a little void to my right. It was only about two to three feet. And uh, Dominic had a hard decision because he said, Sarge, I can get out and go for help. And Sergeant McLaughlin said, if you leave, you'll never find us because it's a debris field. You need to get Jimeno out, and then you and Jimeno get me out which tactically made sense. But then we follow back that we're human beings, you know, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to save yourself. But when you're part of a group where there's a law enforcement, firefighting, military, there's a rule. You don't leave a man behind. And Dominic had a hard choice because you have to understand, I was a father and married. Dominic was a father and married. My sergeant's married and has children as well. And, uh, you know, you think of your family, but at the same time, you got to remember that you're a police officer, you took an oath. And Dominic did that. Uh, he bravely said, "I'm going to get Hemenway out." And he started working on me for about 20 minutes. After those 20 minutes, it, it, it got tough, you know. And even though it's 20 minutes, like we go back to like cracking jokes. Here we are in a situation where we know we lost two men. Uh, there was a piece of rebar wrapped around me with a piece of concrete at the end. And Dominic was a strong guy. He was would take this rebar, but it would swing back and hit me. And, let, you know, let me that-
2: ask you a question. I'm sorry to interrupt. Were were you? Did you? understand like what had actually happened that the whole like there's no, no way
3: you would know no we never knew the buildings came down not that building or the next building we didn't know you we just, thought it was a car bomb you,
2: you just thought it was a car bomb okay I just because wanted the, to clarify that my sergeant
3: my sergeant thought it was a car bomb yeah so we didn't know we were again we were in the concourse we had no idea there was no radio communication so Dominic was trying to get me out and mm-hmm. during the 15 20 minutes You know, he would whip, try to take this thing off of me and it would whip back and hit me. And we laughed. I said, Dom, you're really kicking with some colorful words. I said, you know, you're kicking my ass. And we laughed about it, believe it or not. And uh, laughter brought a little bit of hope to us, you know? And, uh, but after a certain amount of time, he sat back and he said, Will, I can't get you out. And that's when the fear really came in. And that's when we heard the second explosion. Uh, and it was above us. What we didn't know again now was Tower 1 was coming down to us. Tower 2 had already fallen on us. Tower 1's coming. The same type noise. At that point, Dominic kind of stood up a little bit and had to, like, put his arms up. I think, I thought, that's it. We're going to die. And one of the things I've always done with my family is I always say, I love you. I love you. And uh, with the hand sign, the sign language. And all I did was take my hands. Crossing over my chest. Cause I figured if they found me like that, they would tell Alice and my wife, Hey, you know, we found him like this. She would know that I was thinking about her. Cause that's the first time I thought about my family. It was always about the people to get home. Then my team. And at the last moments where death was upon us, that's when I thought about my wife who was seven months pregnant, you know, and I said, you know, that's, that was tough. But as I did that embraced for ultimate death, I could hear Sergeant McLaughlin now yelling because now he's being crushed in a fetal position to the point his weapon is actually being pushed into his body, the leather. Dominic now is hit by something, severely injured. And again, it seemed like it was happening forever and everything stopped. When everything stopped, I was in more pain. I could hear the sergeant uh, yelling. And when I look over to my right, just a, not even a couple of feet away, Dominic was profusely bleeding from his mouth because something had sat him down. Big piece of concrete, unfortunately, came through. And, you know, Dominic just said, Willie, you know, I love you. And don't forget that I died trying to save you guys. He said, Dominic, I would never let anybody forget that.
2: I'm sorry. I'm uh, crying. This is- right.
3: <laughs> and, and And at that moment, believe it or not, he cracked the joke. He said to Sarge, Sarge, can I get a 3-8, which is our code for uh, a break, you know? And Sergeant McLaughlin stopped yelling and actually said, yeah, you can, you can take a 3-8. In his last moments, he was still thinking about the team. He uh, took out his sidearm, his pistol, and he pointed it above us to the hole that was above us, letting light in, and he fired one round. And then he slumped over and, and passed. He was still trying to notify somebody that we were down there. Uh, what we didn't know was we were smack in the middle between both towers. We, At this point, we had actually had both towers following us. Um, that was very difficult. And at that point did really you st-
2: realize like you might like cuz i think you said like what a by by the way how beautiful that is the way that you did the i love you sign um did you think like first of all were you hurt like like your legs like what tell me about that what were your so, injuries or did you oh, even uh- know
3: yeah, a wall actually fell on me, so my whole left side was crushed. I was in extreme pain. Okay. Uh, the only way I can describe it is take a hundred Chevy Suburbans and put them on your whole left side. That's how much pain I was in. It was immense, immense pain. Um, I just kept trying to stay focused on survival. Uh, you know, I had to talk about Dominic passing because the sergeant couldn't see anything. So what I was seeing, I had to describe to him, which was very difficult. And I was leaning on my sergeant for his experience. You know, again, as law enforcement officers, uh, firefighters, military, EMTs, you fall back on your training. Uh, But he he came out and said he goes, "There's no training for this. Uh, This is basically we're gonna have to survive on our own will." You know, uh, and he said he goes, "Look, they're not gonna come in and look for anybody till they can stabilize uh, the area, and who knows how long that's gonna be." Uh, So at that point, it started basically a fight for our survival. A lot of bad things, which I talk about in the book uh sunrise to darkness i go into detail as to what happened like the fireballs that fell in a weapon being fired because it went off later shot right over my head 15 rounds uh, and just hours and hours of of honestly just help you know at one point uh and i think this is the most important part of and i hate to call it my story just it's a story a human story uh was i'm 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 catholic i don't preach religion uh but there was a point that I wanted to die that evening. It was many, many hours into it. Uh, you know, we lost three teammates, uh, been crushed, been burnt. My body was burned. Uh, I just wanted to die. And I made my peace with God. I said, God, thank you for 33 great years. Thank you for my beautiful wife, Allison. Four years of my little girl, Bianca. Uh, my parents were bringing me to this great crunch country, having my baby sister, Karen, uh, being part of my uh, growing up. And I said, God, if I'm going to die today, I'm going to die proud as an American. But I said, I'm going to ask you for two favors. One is somehow, some way, let me see my little girl be born. Because I was expecting my child, Olivia, who is now 20 years old, very proud of her, both my daughters, Bianca and Olivia, uh, to be there to, be, to witness her be born. Because I knew it was going to kill Allison to not have me there. And second, as silly as it sounds... We were so caked in concrete. I was so thirsty. I said, God, when I get to heaven, because I felt that everybody's going to go to heaven that day, no matter because I say these cowards attacked innocent people who were just trying to make better lives for their families. I said, God, all I want is a glass of water. And I closed my eyes. I closed my eyes. And I tell people, listen, you can call it whatever you want. You can call it a dream, a vision. I close my eyes. And I see somebody walking toward me, no face, glowing, white robe. Over his left shoulder was a pond in the distance or a lake with tranquil trees. Over his right shoulder was a tall endless sea of grass. And a peace came over me. And I see this person walking toward me. And I know who it is. It's Jesus to me. And what does he have in his hand? I tell people you can laugh. He had a bottle of water. I can't tell you if it was Poland Spring or what. But I snap out of that dream vision, whatever you want to call it, with a desire to keep fighting and not give up. Because I realized at that point, if I had given up, I would have given up on my family because I didn't fight hard enough to get home, on my sergeant, because nobody could hear him. I have the bigger mouth and I was right by the hole. I would have given up on my country. But most of all, I would have given up on myself. And that's what I share with people. At the moment, whatever you're dealing with, I call it, like I said, sunrise to the bar- darkness, we'll talk about it here in a second, the book I wrote, yeah. is really bad. When you find yourself in a dark place, And it doesn't have to be, you know, the World Trade Center. It could be drug addiction, alcoholism. You know, you're dealing with mental uh, struggles or mental issues, the loss of a loved one. You know, you lost your job during COVID or you had COVID. You're still recovering from it. So I always tell people because people will walk up to me. And you said this earlier. You naturally said, oh, I don't want to compare me to you. I tell people. Because they come up to me, Will, I can't think of anything worse than 220 stories falling on you. And I said, you know what? You lost your mother or father recently. Again, maybe you got told that you have a life-threatening illness. You were in a car accident. And this is something I learned from my co-author, Dr. Michael Maltz, that I wrote the book with, Sunrise to the Darkness, is tragedies are not competitive. Remember that. Do not... Compare your tragedy to someone else. At the moment that something tragic happens in your life, it's as if the 220 stories are coming down on you. It's what we do with ourselves to overcome it. For me, I had to dig down deep in faith and love and sh- and fight. And I made a decision at that point that if I was going to die that night, I was going to die trying because there's a peace that comes over knowing that you've given it everything you have. And luckily for me at eight o'clock that night and my sergeant, We heard voices in the distance, two Marine Reservists, Dave Carnes and Jason Thomas, along with a civilian, broke through the lines where they weren't letting anybody in. And they went into the epicenter and heard me yelling. At that point, they called a Cavalry and NYPD ESU Truck One came in. Scott Strauss, Patty McGee, two NYPD officers. And Chuck Sharika, a civilian who was a former paramedic, came off the street and jumped into this hole. Where they were told many, many times to leave us and put their lives on the line for three hours it took to get me out, and my sergeant came out the next morning at seven a.m. He's the we we didn't know till the following year we're the only two people to survive from under it, and you know what it's a miracle that we were able to survive. You know I flatlined twice that night at Bellevue Hospital. Uh, our recoveries are beyond uh, words because of the doctors from Bellevue Hospital. Um, And all the other therapists we had along the way that have helped us to regain physical function, you know, and uh, we're blessed in that aspect. And what September 11th, when you when we talk about the darkest day, I talk about the day of most light, because on that day, the cowards, the terrorists thought we were going to bring the United States and the world to its knees. Instead, we rose up. People came in to help us when we went in to help people and we found ourselves in need. And on September 11th, we showed evil that it will never, ever win. And that's why I love Edmund Burke's uh, quote, all that is needed for the triumph of evil is for good men to stand by and do nothing. Well, there's always going to be good men and women that step up to the plate and will not allow evil to triumph. And that's what we showed that day. And then for me is now what I share with today is not only the story of that day, but my recovery because... I had to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder. Something that people uh, are dealing with even more today, especially after COVID. You know, people don't think, well, you can't get post-traumatic stress disorder from COVID. Sure can. People have lost their job. People have physically been... I know personally a friend of mine whose daughter got really ill with it, a young lady. She's still just getting to the point where she can walk, you know, maybe a couple blocks without, uh, you know, not being able to breathe heavy. So things... um, affect people in different ways. And I want people to understand that Will Jimeno, a normal human being who survived 220 stories, was able to come back to physically still live with a lot of injuries and live with post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's a long, long journey. Really is a long journey. And it's one that you never completely, for me, the day the journey's over is the day they bury me. You know, PTSD, alcoholism, drug abuse, um, any other thing you can think of that affects people's lives every day are things they need to learn to live with and control. It's not something you get rid of, you know, 100%. and that's what I want. Yeah. You know, I want people to understand that if they're listening to me, understand no matter what struggles you go into, you deserve your sunrise to the darkness, you know, and my road to recovery was a very dark road, you know, not only physically because I suffer from compartment syndrome. I have to wear a brace today to walk. Uh, lost a lot of muscle tissue. My sergeant took double the injuries I did and he never complains. You, know, but he's also a you bad, must, bad you must have
2: had to deal with survivor's guilt, like all of the th- those things. Um, but you one th- one of the things that, I mean, there's so much, like I could do a whole nother episode right now, but just seeing, I mean, I talk a lot about spirituality on the podcast and signs and, um, just knowing the story about the water and see i bo- i believe that stuff i think it's real um and there's a purpose why you were spared and what to share your story and you know do all the things that you're doing in your life like we're all human we're all going to go that's like everybody comes here and is going to die at some point but like you wonder Well, I was spared, and I'm asking you this, I was spared to share my story and help other people. Like, how did you kind of like touch on how you kind of got to the point where you were able to do that? And how long did it
3: take? Uh, Children, it was really children, to be honest. I never planned to speak about anything. It was 2003. I still wasn't walking right. My neighbor where I lived in Clifton at the time, Clifton, New Jersey, came over to me and said, could you come to our school and talk to the third, fourth, and fifth graders? They're afraid to get on planes at the time.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: And I'm like, well, what am I going to say? He's like, just please come and tell them your story and how you survived. And uh, I had gone there, put on my uniform, and basically shared the same story I did with you. Of course, brought it down to their level with any type of death scene um and i remember that my uh fellow officer antonio rodriguez who passed that day his wife had said something to me uh, not too long before i went to talk to the children her children were scared to get on a plane because antonio was from portugal and they were going to honor him in portugal and the kids didn't want to get on a plane and she said to him look you got to get on that plane because if we don't get on a plane we disrespect your father my husband but most importantly, what we're doing is we're allowing the terrorists to win. If we live in fear, they win. If you live in fear from any substance abuse or any type of of, of of disease or struggles, you're letting that win. And I went in there, shared the story, and I told them, don't live in fear because you're allowing fear to win. And I got feedback after where parents have said, my kid's not scared to get on a plane anymore. Because I told them, look, we all have an expiration date. We're all going to die one day. It's not nothing to be grim about. It's just life. And those children gave great feedback. And before I knew it, people started calling me. Other schools started calling me. And I started seeing that in a way, I guess my wife always said it was therapeutic for me, unbeknownst to me, because I was still dealing with PTSD. And PTSD encompasses the survivor's guilt, all that. It's just a big, ugly ball of mess. And it. By me speaking, I was starting to realize I was helping people. And in a way, it helped me too. Uh, And as I continued to talk over the years, it got to the point where I was talking to universities. Hence, that's where the book Sunrise Through the Darkness came because I had a Marine who had heard me speak come back the following year and got up in the back and said, um, I hope people listen to Will because I had some bad thoughts. And after listening to Will, uh, I decided to go get help. And he floored me. He basically credited me with saving his life, and um,
2: he actually. Me. Can you can you really quickly um, tell me about your two books? Um, and what, like one of them's a children's book. Yes. And one of them, so t- so talk about your books, and how you so got start- to the point where you wanted to write them. Was it because of that marine that inspired you, or? Yeah.
3: Yes, he was. He was one of the main catalysts. Uh, for me writing the book and it took me a long time to write it because they had made the movie world trade center about us. So a lot of the book companies like, look, and they made a movie about you. And I said, it's not about the movie. Mm -hmm. It's about the recovery period. Uh, but it did happen. I got together with Michael Moats, and we wrote the book sunrise to the darkness which has been receiving great reviews. Uh, It basically goes into what happened to me, my recovery. But then I bring Michael Moltz in as a psychiatrist, uh, excuse me, a doctor of of, uh, psychology, and he gives exercises. For those that don't want to go speak to a therapist or a doctor, uh, and that's one of the main things today. People don't want to talk. They feel ashamed. They feel alone. I want them to know they're not alone. In this book, we give you exercises that will help you. And eventually, I hope it gives you one more day, one more week, one more month, so you don't do something drastic like the suicide rate is so high today. Mm -hmm. So Sunrise to the Darkness, and then out of that, the last couple of years, people kept pushing me about doing a children's book. And I'm like, how do I do a children's book? But I ended up meeting Charles Riccardi, my co-author and illustrator, and we did Immigrant American Survivor, which follows me from Colombia as an immigrant, how I came to this country, the trials and tribulations of growing up, my service in the military, and what happened on September 11th. And it's really geared for third, fourth, and fifth graders. It teaches kids to dream big, understand that life's not perfect, and it's going to be cruel sometimes, but that they too can overcome tragedy like I did, because they identify that I'm no different than them. I grew up and I'm going to have the same issues and had the same issues as they had. So both books are on Amazon.com and BarnesandNobles.com, Immigrant American Survivor, and my other book, Sunrise Through Darkness. I hope that you guys will reach out and check out the books. And I hope it helps you. I hope the sunrise through the darkness will help you if you're a person who finds themselves in a dark place and understand that you deserve happiness. I want everybody to understand that. An Immigrant American Survivor is a book that you can share with your children that is is non-political, follows an immigrant who became an American who loves this country and lived through the World Trade Center. Because you want to give your children the tools to understand that they can overcome anything that life throws at them. And unfortunately, life does throw some bad things our ways. It's just the way it is. It's been like that since the beginning of time. It'll be like that till the end of time. And just remember, this is what I tell people. If you're lucky to live till 90 years old, do the math. There's 365 days in a year. Multiply that by 90 if you're lucky to live that long. Part of that time, we're in diapers. And if you're lucky to live till 90, you might be in diapers again. Yeah. That time period, when you do the multiplication, you will see... Wow, that's not a lot of days on this earth. So be someone who makes a positive difference in this world. Be someone who lives your life for happiness for you and the people around you. And understand that life is short and you deserve happiness. And you are not alone. Don't let the the social media make you think everybody's happy. Everybody you see on Facebook that's happy have the same problems as you and me. I say that all the time. I
2: call it my Facebook life.
3: (laughs) I call yeah, it nobody.
2: my Facebook life. I'm like, oh, I wish I had my Facebook life. You know, I I also want to ask you, what is your social media for pe- so people can reach out to you and follow you? If you're well, okay sharing uh, that.
3: Well, we have a Facebook page for each of the books, Sunrise to Darkness and Immigrant American Survivor. Okay. The book. Okay. Uh, my my social media is just Wasp Archer. I'm at uh, on Instagram and uh, Will Jimeno on Facebook. I really don't promote things because. That was never my focus. Uh, you know, doing these podcasts is where I'm able to reach people and say, look, Sunrise Through Darkness, Immigrant American Survivor, Amazon.com, BarnesandNobles.com. And if you pick up the book, I ask one thing. I hope it helps you. And if it helps you, please give a good review because then that allows other people to read the reviews. And I'm, I'm blessed that I have some reviews there from people who opened up about their struggles. And that allows people who are struggling and feel they're by themselves to see I'm not by myself. Someone put a review there that has similar issues to me and it helped me. And that's how we help each other by opening up. And like you said, everybody has an important story. Your story is important. And, you know, my wife, she's still reeling from the loss of her parents in 2016 and in 2017. She still mourns them. And that's not easy. You know, how do you get over that? Well, that's a tough thing. I don't have the answer. All I can do is give her unconditional love and support. And just remember, if you lose someone important in your life, the way we keep them alive is by living a good life and talking about them. I always talk about Dominic, Antonio, Chris, Bruce Reynolds. We lost 37 Port Authority police officers, the most law enforcement officers lost on one day. And the way we keep them alive is by talking about them. So remember, if you lost a loved one, share those funny stories, share those good memories with people. That's the way we keep people alive.
2: I, lo- I mean, you're so incredible and... um and I'm so touched to have met you and talked to you. I I could talk to you forever. What I want you to know is um I st- like I kind of touched on this. I started this because I was in the darkest place of my life in 2019. Um I did I per- didn't want to go on. I was I had been diagnosed with complex PTSD from stemming from my childhood. And so a lot of the reasons I share these stories and I do these podcasts is because of people like you. So if you were able to have a giant, (laughs) I don't even know how much of weight of that building was on you, but, and go on, it's really like a reason for people to know that there's always a reason Your mental health is so important. It's so important to listen to Will, like, go to a therapist, talk to someone if you can. There's always resources. Um, The universities, a lot of times those therapists are in school and they're willing to take in, you know, patients because they're in training. Um, There's always hope and there's always light, even with Will's story, even in like the darkest times with death surrounding him. Um, I just want my listeners to know how important it is to, to be kind and do the right thing in life. And there is a lot of really awful things in the world, but if Will is able to come out of the situation and know that there's light and, and know that, you know, you can still go on even suffering years later, 20 years later, um, there's always hope. So thank you, Will, for coming on. Um, I'm, I'm excited for my listeners to get your book and share it and read it. Um, I'm going to be getting the children's book for my kids. because I think it's important to talk about mental health with your children, especially after COVID and all the stuff we just talked about. Um, in closing, I'm not going to say why I say this, which I talked about in the beginning, but be happy by making others happy. And Will, I'm going to tell you something you're doing that you're doing the work and, um, I'm, I'm so, um, thankful that you came on today. So thank you.
3: Thank you. And I just want to let everybody know that your life matters. And as the sweatshirt says here, never quit. Don't ever, ever quit on yourself because you are very important to a lot of people. Never forget that. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.